invite you to join me in the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians chapter 2 this morning. As you're turning and the notes are being distributed, if you need them, I'd like to tell you a story about a gentleman that some of you may have heard about. This fellow lives in the Midwest. His name is Kevin Bow. He, uh, he is an individual who has established his own nation. You've probably heard of it, Malaysia or something of that sort. He has in this kingdom that he has set up, he has, it's, by the way, it's in a town in Nevada. The kingdom consists of all 1.7 acres of his own property. He has his own flag. He has his own post office. He also has his own, he says, his own space program. It's a plastic model rocket about this big. He has his own rail, his own uh, transportation system. It's a Lionel train in his living room. He has his own navy. It's an inflated boat in his garage. His title is His Excellency, which he requires of those who visit his property. He is one of the many different people that in our nation there are several who have established what they called micronations and several who have done this around the world. The article in the newspaper, the, the publication that talked about him said this 45-year-old father of two is what we call micronationalist. A group of people who raise flags over their front yards declare their property to be their own private kingdom. In jest, he says, this is the kingdom of me. And that's his title for it, the kingdom of me. I got to thinking about that. I wonder how many of us have set up our own micronation in our minds. How many people, it's not a physical property, but it's the way we act, the way we treat, the way we interact with people, that we are convinced that there's a kingdom of me. I know it's true that in some of our nation that there's people that it's all about me. It's all about the selfishness. It's all about getting ahead. And these aren't so funny stories. These aren't so humorous of people who are really saying it's all about me. It's about this individual, Amber Carson, who's down in Philadelphia a couple of years ago. She, spilled her, she uh, was getting up from the fast food restaurant and slipped on a spilled drink. And so she sued the restaurant for it, and the restaurant had to pay her $113,000 for damages. But the fact was that 30 seconds before she stood up, she's the one who threw the soda in her boyfriend's face. But she was awarded $113,000. The kingdom of me when it comes to greed. The kingdom of me when it comes to this idea of being selfish. There's a store that was sued by this Kathleen Robertson of Texas. She's awarded $85,000 because she fell and broke some bones. She fell because there was a toddler running through the store that was uncontrolled. The people who lost the lawsuit, the furniture store, were shocked because guess whose child it was? It was her own child. Her child. But she sued the store, the kingdom of me. There's this individual who he won from his neighbors in a lawsuit $15,000 for medical expenses because he got bit by their dog. He wanted a lot more. But the jury decided that they wouldn't give him all that he wanted because for a half hour before that he was shooting the dog with a BB gun. And then he went over to kick the dog who was tied up, but he got a little bit too close. Frankly, I think they should have let the dog loose, okay, and shot him with the BB gun for a half hour. Okay, the kingdom of me. Now, those are extreme cases of the kingdom of me attitude. Those are you know, exotic cases from the humorous to the sad. But the real truth is that when God is addressing many of the believers, he is saying we've got to be careful because we live in a time and a day where the kingdom of me is prevalent. Taking an article from New York Times that was written. It was talking about selfishness invading America. We are, over, we are an overconfident species given to the magnification of self. Do you think that's true? That it's all about me? In fact, it went on to say one of the clearest conclusions of social science research is that we are proud people. We could have told them that. 
the Bible says that that is where we are, sin nature-wise. We are, by nature, kingdom of me individuals. To, to highlight this, there was a surveys that were done. Surveys that were talking about, that this news company did, to talk about are we in, a, in an era where there's more selfishness. What they did is they took, went back and they, did a, they had a results of surveys done years ago and made a comparison. Graduating seniors from high school, they asked this question, are you a very important person in your own mind? Are you really important compared to other people? 1950s, how many said Yes. What percentage would you say said yes? 12%. Now, they did it again in 2005. What percent? 80%. 80%. So, they wanted to do it a little bit further, say, is there really, in our society, is there a gravitation towards self-centeredness? <laughs> we could tell them, the Bible says... Yes, and save the survey dollars, but to show they did one million college students randomly across the nation. When they asked, they asked this question, how would you rate your leadership skills in this area of leading others? Those who answered said, 70%, I'm above average. Okay? Then they asked the second question of these college students. How do you define your relationship skills, getting along with other people? 85% marked these top two choices. They, oops, they said, I am above average people skills, and I get along with everyone, and everyone gets along with me. That's why there's no problems on college campuses, by the way. Okay. Now, what strikes me about this is this next stat. Of one million people in the survey, not a single person said this, my skills are below average. Not one person. What does that give any indication where we're headed towards? Now, in that same college survey, they asked those who were campus leaders, campus influencers, many of the college professors. They asked them, how would you re re rate your relationship skills? So those who are, were doing the teaching said, 88% said, I'm above average to exceptional in getting along with people. Then you rate your leadership skills. How do you rate your being a leader as you know, a leader of people? Well, 88% said, I'm above average. Then they asked this question. How would you rate yourself as an instructor, your skills as a teacher? 94% said, I'm outstandingly gifted. I think I had the other 6% in my training, okay? It's just, what does it indicate to us? Is there a tendency and a, and a, and a len, leaning towards more self-centeredness, more self-promotion, more pride? You see, the Bible warns us, multiple passages warns us about this idea of pride, this idea of thinking we're better than others. And there's so many passages. Oh, Proverbs says, pride goeth before the fall, the Holy Spirit before the destruction. I may reverse those two. But the whole idea is that you and I are focusing on a spirit of not selfishness, but selflessness. There's one text of all the texts that seems to me to be the text that really strives to hit this the most. It's in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. In the New Testament, he's writing to believers and he's warning believers about getting caught up with thinking too highly of themselves. Read with me as you follow along and I read. It says in Philippians 2, starting with verse 1, if there, there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels 
miracles and mercies. Fulfill me my joy. Be like-minded, having same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. What you have in this text is very clear. You have an instruction given. An instruction that is very, very clear. Let me, let me see if I can highlight a few thoughts though as you just look over those verses. He says, if there be, if there be, if there be, if there be in verse 1. Literally in the original language it's this. Since there is, since there is, since there is, since you have this, then you should do this. The since then is this. Since there is consolation in Christ. The word literally means this idea. Is there hope in Christ? Is there support in Christ? Is there encouragement in Christ? And you and I would say... Yes, there is. In Christ, we can face anything. With Christ, we can deal with difficult situations and difficult people. So he says, since there is consolation, since there is comfort of love, the word that he's using for comfort is stimulation. Speaking positive to build up. Does love build us up? Is there, is there within the body, within Christianity, is there this idea of, of helping one another? He goes on. He says, since there is fellowship of the Spirit. The literal idea is a partnership that we have a commonality that we're born again. We have the Spirit of God dwelling and living within us who are saved. And he's talking about, okay, in Christ we have hope, we have help, we have consolation, we have innately within us the ability to speak in love. We have the fellowship, the unity of the Holy Spirit between us. Is there, then he talks about the bowels and mercies as you finish out verse 1, where he talks about if there is any, the, the word bowels, it was the old Bible term for compassion. You know how we say, I love you with all my heart. They would have said in the Old Testament, I love you with all my intestines. Now we wouldn't like that on a Valentine card today. We would find that you know, re- kind of awful. But that's the way it was then. And so he's talking about, he's saying is there bowels and is there mercies? The bowels is the idea, is there inner affection towards others that shows itself out in outward deeds? And he says, yes, there is. Within Christianity, this is what you've got. In Christianity, you have hope in Christ. In Christianity, you have words to be able to speak to one another, encouraging. You have a partnership in the Spirit. You have an innate love. If any man loves the brother and the love of the Father is within him. You have an innate bondage and tie to and, and commonality with other believers. And you should have, as a fruit of the Spirit, the ability to show this outwardly, therefore. Because this is innate in Christianity, because we are experiencing all these things, he says, fulfill my joy. Bring me to the point where I am so excited to see you grow in Christ. And then he gives them the command in the passage. The command is very simple and singular. Be like-minded. He doesn't mean that we all have to say the same, think the same thing. He doesn't say we all have to like the same thing. Some of you like coconut. Some of you love the Lord. And I'm not saying they're contradictory. Go together. Okay. Okay. Some of you like the coconut. Some of you say, okay, I, I don't like it. Some of you say, I like you know, white shirts and white shirts only. Some of us say, no. Okay, we, have, we don't have to be that like thinking about everything. We don't all have to drive a Ford or a Buick or you know, whatever. 
We don't all have to have the same cell phones, nor do we all need to have the same type of computer. Okay? We can have variety in those areas, and I know you have variety in those areas. He's saying, but when it comes to consideration of purpose and goals in life, in life I want you to be single-minded, same-minded when it comes to how are you going to treat one another? Same love. How are you going to help one another of one accord? How are you going to work together for the glory and the work of Jesus Christ? One mind. And so this whole passage is all about unity. It's about working together. It's about having a humility that says it's not about me. Saying that it's about a bigger picture. The bigger picture is the body of Christ. What it brings us down to is being other-centered, not self-centered. Focusing on the needs of other people, on the needs of those who that we need to reach with the gospel. He basically goes on and says, I don't want this in your life. I don't want you to have strife or vainglory, but this is what should be in your life. A lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than yourself. Not this, not every man looking on his own things, but this. You are concerned about the things of others, the needs of others, the concerns of others, the struggles of others. So he's very clearly saying to you and me that genuine Christianity, if we're going to live it as a body, as a, as a church, we're not divisive. We're not cliquish. We're to be united in being concerned and being ministering one to another and not focused on how do I get ministered to? What do people do for me? And is my way being met? Genuine Christianity is about humility. It's about being selfless and not selfish. Augustine, a great writer, talked about this whole idea years ago. Years ago, one of the leading theologians in Christian history, they asked him this question. What are the three greatest Christian virtues? He said, number one, humility, putting others first. Number two, humility, putting others first. Number three, humility, putting others first. We have one of those missionary preachers, great writer on praying, Andrew Murray. They asked him, what was humility? He says this, humility is not thinking down on yourself or being critical or busting on yourself would be modern terms. It is this, not thinking about yourself but putting others first. You and I need to live this way. That's what he's saying. It's not about us. A grandmother was attending a grandchild's wedding. Excuse me. Attending the, the wedding. And so her granddaughter's getting married, and one of, the, one of the cousins, a five-year-old, was asked to be the ring bearer. But the grandmother knew that this five-year-old was kind of nixy. And he you know, could get in front of people and act up. So she decided that she had a plan to give him incentive to behave, to be focused. And so she announced at the wedding rehearsal with permission, told the little boy in particular with everybody else standing around, I have this very special prize that I'm going to give to that person in the wedding party who is the best behaved. I'm going to judge that by what do other people do when you walk in? Do they, do they giggle and laugh? Or will they just watch and smile and you impress them? So her whole incentive, you have got it already, was to make sure he doesn't act up, that he behaves. So it comes to the wedding day. The little boy is really focused. He wants the prize. So he comes walking down, doing his thing, real proper, real right. He comes up to his spot. He stands there the whole time, doesn't twitch, doesn't move. He's real focused. He doesn't draw any attention to himself. Wedding is all done. They're at the reception. He is seated at the head table. 
Grandmother makes a little bit of a show of it with everybody's approval. She comes walking in with his big box and she says, well, I've decided who the person is who did the very best and did the, was the most important in the wedding and everybody listened and watched them. And she said to the grandson, we think this goes to you. He leaned back in his chair with a big smile and went, whew! He said, I tried so hard. I thought I had won it until I saw her walking in. And then everybody stood up and looked at her and smiled a lot more than they did for me. You know something? It's only an immature youngster who would think the wedding is about them. It's cute. But immaturity, when it comes to the bride of Christ, is seen when some individual says, it's more about me than about the bride. It's not about me. This isn't about you. This isn't about us getting our way. This isn't about us being noticed. It's about Christ being honored and his bride being lifted up and built up. You and I, in order to address that and to contribute to that, it's that we need to work on being other-centered. Others focused in so many ways. And by the way, before we move on, I want you to catch something. This other-mindedness, this other-centeredness, this selflessness, this humility, it is something that is called to every believer's life. Let every one of you, he says in verse 4, everyone, not just the adults, but the teens, not just the men, but the ladies, not just the married, but the singles, not just the older believers, but also the new believers. It's all of us. We are called to be others-centered in our life. And it's not just a call to all, but it is also to look for every opportunity you can to be more other-centered. It's to be a normal part, a regular part, a, a daily part of your life that you are focusing on other people, not yourself. Meeting needs, stretching out, doing more for the cause of Christ. Now, he's given the command. He's given the instruction. Then, to me, he goes into the most potent part of the text. He gives the example or the illustration. The illustration is what follows as he moves on. Watch. Look at the next few verses. He says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind? The mind of others-centered. That same mind, and he goes on and he gives the illustration. He says, Jesus Christ, this was his mind, other-centered, other who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What he's doing in this text is phenomenal. He is saying that you and I are to think about this. We are to act upon this. We are, to, we are to change our perception, change our goals, change the way we think. Do I think the way Christ thought? As a man thinks, that's the way he's going to be. So do I think the way Christ thought, according to this text? Am I other-centered the way Christ was other-centered? By the way, I, I, I'll, this is the Mount Everest of doctrinal passages in the Scriptures. This is one of those passages that is filled with so much theological truth about the deity of Jesus Christ, about his incarnation. It is loaded with implication. He doesn't develop it. He assumes the readers understands that and just lays it out there and moves on. And he says, in context, he is saying that this 
is the way we are to think, the way our master thought. We are to follow in his steps. By the way, some people think that this was a psalm that was written. These words were actually a song that was sung in the church. If we look at it and dissect it, can I, can I take a little bit of liberty and just kind of say, this is the way Christ thought about us more than himself. In this way, in this fact, that Jesus was so other-centered, so focused on ministering to others and helping others, that he, did, that he gave up his right. He gave up his privilege to live like God. To live like God. What the passage is talking about is his incarnation, stepping down from heaven, coming down to this earth. Now, he was God. There is no doubt about it. Being in the form, the essence of God, that he was actually God. Now we get into that whole Trinitarian concept that is explained throughout Scripture, but that's not his push isn't arguing Trinity. His push is Jesus was willing to not live like a God for the sake of other people. But he was God. He was God, totally, completely, fully God. He didn't think it was something that he should keep to himself and, and hang on to in such a way that, that nobody would benefit from his godnessness. No. Instead, I won't live like a God in heaven. I will come to this earth. And so he, because of being other-centered... He looked on the needs of others. He came to to minister, not to be ministered unto. It's an amazing thought that Jesus Christ came to this earth not to live like like God, but to live like us, to minister to us, to, to share with us. It's an amazing thought that he who is in the splendors of heaven will be birthed in a barn, if it was a barn. which we think it is. That he came where it wasn't sanitary. That he came where there wasn't the, the, the trumpeting and the parades. That he came to this earth to minister, to give up his palace, to give up his possessions, to give up his wealth, if you would, for our benefit. That's the mind that we're supposed to have. That's what this whole passage is about. This passage is saying, are you willing, like Christ, to give up some of your wealth to meet the needs of others? Are you willing to endure some physical hardships and discomforts to minister to other people? Are you one who is willing to say, it's not about my comfort, it's about meeting these people's needs around me? It's not about me being where, I, where it's pleasant and it's nice and I, and I don't feel like you know, it stinks or, or I'm cold. It's about ministering to other people, serving other people. That's the mind of Christ. That's what he's calling us to. Be an individual that you don't esteem yourself, but you put others before you. And he says, have the mind of Christ. What a challenge. What a challenge. <laughs> There's a story that's told about a man who's at the golf club play or golf course place and uh, golf club and he clubhouse and he's there, he's in the locker room with a bunch of other guys and the other guys are talking about all of their wealth and their investments and they're impressing one another, but he's just sitting there quietly listening to the conversation. And so as he's getting ready and changing you know, in that locker room, he's sitting there and the phone rings next to him. And so he picks up the phone, answers it, puts it on speakerphone. And so everybody can listen and hear. And he says, hello. 
And the other end says, honey, is that you? Yeah, it's me. Well, you're still at the clubhouse. Yeah, I'm still there. I can barely hear you. It's kind of fuzzy. Well, what did you need? Honey, I just want to call and ask. Um, I was just at the store, and I saw a beautiful leather jacket for $10,000. I love it. Is it okay if I buy it? Sure, go ahead. You can buy it. Oh, honey, before I came here, I drove past a car dealership, the Mercedes dealership, and I stopped in because they had this really good-looking, you know, semi-used Mercedes. It was only $80,000. You know, and I would really like it. I'm sure you would like it too. Well, for $80,000, it better have all the bells and whistles. It does, it does. Go ahead, get it if you'd like. The other guys are listening to this and going, uh, uh, you know, they're all surprised. And she, then the woman continues, says, um, Honey, remember that house we were looking at a couple months ago? It's back on the market. And they dropped the price. It's only $950,000. But they said that they have other people that are making an offer. What do you think? Offer 900000 and see what they say. Oh, you're the greatest. So are you. Goodbye, goodbye. The other guys are just shocked. They're looking at him. They're just, they're just amazed. Then he smiles and says, does anybody know whose cell phone this is? <laughs> it is easy to give away other people's money. It is easy to just say, hey, go and do something when it doesn't cost me, but it costs you. You know, in the same way, it is easy for you to say to others, you need to sacrifice the way Christ did. It's easy to say, hey, you need the mind of Christ, you need to work the nursery. You need the mind of Christ, you should be volunteering to help with kids' programs and ministering to those kids. You should be visiting, there should be more of you visiting the widows. More of you should be out in the evangelism program and going out calling. I don't understand why more in our church don't do that. They should have the mind of Christ. There should be more that have the mind of Christ to go and visit those who are in the rest home and to do those services. It's easy to sacrifice somebody else's time and energy that's not what this text says. This text says to you, to me, you need to have the mind of Christ. You need to be the one that says, I put others first. And not live like a God and worry about all about my comfort, my riches, my growth, and be focused on other people. Is that you? He goes on in this text and he says, not only did Jesus give up the right to live like God, but he gave up the right to act like God. In the text, it goes on, it says this, he made himself of no reputation. This is where we get that whole conflict that people were debating this whole text. It's called the kenosis theory. It's basically based on this idea. He emptied himself in the original language. It's the idea that he, he gave up something. There are those who say he gave up his deity. And for a period of time, Jesus wasn't God, but then all of a sudden he became God later on. Or he gave up, you know, powers and abilities. You know, that doesn't make any sense by Scripture. How can you be God and all of a sudden, I'm not God? It's an impossibility. 
And by the way, Jesus possessed great abilities and God, God-likeness through all of his life. But what he did empty himself of is this. What he did give up was this. He gave up the independent use of it. He gave up the right to say, I'm God, I want to be recognized as God. I want you to bow to me. I want you to applaud me. I want you to, right now, worship me. Now, ultimately, that's where he was going. But there was for many years in his life that he gave up the independent use. It was as the Spirit led. It was as the Father directed. It was as they were maneuvering and saying, minister here, minister here, and being led by the Spirit. He's God. He doesn't need anybody to lead him. But he gave up the independent use, gave up his right to act like God while he was here at his own women wishes. That's an amazing thought. It's an amazing thought that Jesus Christ was totally submissive to the Spirit. One author, one, one pastor wrote this, and I, I can't say it better than he did, so bear with me as I read a segment of his sermon. He said, Jesus gave up his right to act out his attributes for his own benefit. He could have smashed his way through history. He could have pulled rank any time he pleased. He could have manipulated everything to his own liking. He could have said, I don't want it freezing rain today. Poop, there's no freezing rain. I don't want it to be cold here this month. Poof, it's not cold. I would like it to be cooler today. Poof, it's all cool. Think about it. Why would he slave over some workbench with a hammer or a chisel as a son of a carpenter? He could have snapped his fingers like some genie and voila, there's the table. There's the plow. And why not? Most of us would have. Just think of what he could have done for the entire family business with all of his miracle power. Yet he was willing to grow to manhood in an insignificant little town like Nazareth. He was willing to be an unknown carpenter without any halo around his head or a Superman suit underneath his robe. In fact, he was so ordinary that when he announced who he was, even his own half-brothers and sisters did not believe him. The Messiah? Not a chance. Him? God? No way. Will he stand up for his divine right and eliminate all opposition and vindicate his claim to the throne of Jerusalem? No, never did that. One author writes, the kenosis, the incarnation, was a voluntary deprivation of the exercise of who he really was. Have the mind of Christ that we don't have to always have our way just because we can. The mind of Christ. The idea of saying, okay, I'm going to. I'm going to want it this way. He not only gave up his right to live like God, to act like God, but he gave up his right to look like a God. To look like God. Look at the passage. The passage goes on. He took upon himself the essence of a servant. He became in the likeness of man. He, he, he looked not like a God would look. In fact, we go through and, and think about, think it through a little bit. He didn't come to earth to be, whoa, walk in the room and everybody, wow. You know, he looked common. He looked average. He didn't need or want to be seen and recognized by eventually, and I understand theologically, he did, he wanted them to recognize who he was as Savior. But as an individual, for most of his life, it wasn't about, hey, hey, look at me, look at me, aren't I wonderful? 
It wasn't that at all. In fact, Isaiah writing not about his crucifixion appearance, but writing about his, his growing up appearance. He shall grow before him as a tender plant, as a root, out of a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, this is the King James, and when you shall see him, there is no beauty that you should desire him. ESV puts the last phrase. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and desire him. And that was true. By his appearance, people by his appearance alone weren't moved to say, wow, he is so different from the rest of us. His style, his dress, his speech, it wasn't that way. That he was just so enamoring. Now, he was gracious. He was all those things as he ministered. But for the most of his life, he wasn't recognized for his position. And he was fine with that. He was fine with that as he did most of his daily life. Now, church, most, most Christians can't handle this. Most of Christianity says, no, no, Jesus was God, so there had to be something very peculiar around him. Therefore, in all the historical art, how do they picture Jesus to make him look exceptional? What do they always put around Jesus? Halos. Halos that everybody would say, ooh, there's a glow about him. Really? Do you really think that happened in Bible truth? That those people walked around and there was this orb around their head. That's not, that, that can't be the case. They wondered who he was. But stories abound. You want to read stories about Jesus as a lad, you can have these stories that just say, oh, he was, this, he was such an abnormal situation. When they went to Egypt, the, the stories start this way, the traditional stories, that they fled to Egypt because of uh, Herod's going to try to kill the children. So they're fleeing to Egypt. And in the story, it's got it said that they came to a cave. And Mary and Joseph with the baby Jesus go into the cave, and it's cold. All the spiders realized who he was. So the spiders came and they created a web that was like a huge blanket thick as a door so that all the heat would stay inside and the baby Jesus was comforted because the spiders all knew who he was. Okay, Bible doesn't say that. Bible gives no indication of that. The, uh, it says that as they traveled to and from Egypt, when they came, all the trees would bow down to them as they moved down the road. That way, whenever they were hungry, they would just have to go over and just pluck whatever fruit was bowing down before them. Fanciful, but that's not the way it worked. Then there's the story that whenever they traveled, all the animals would come outdoors and line the roads, and the animals would bow down to them. If people would see that, they would kind of say, who is that? Okay. They, there's a story that says that she couldn't get the baby Jesus to sleep at night, so the angels would come and play violins, which weren't invented, but they would play violins. <laughs> So that, the, so that the, you know, the angels just had to help Mary put baby Jesus to sleep because of his majesty. The, the passage, their stories say that the other kids in Nazareth were so moved by Jesus that often they would put their cloaks on the ground so he could walk on the cloaks. There are stories that when he would pass by any, anywhere to, headed for Jerusalem or anything, if he passed a home where they had an idol, the idol would blow up, would fall apart. There are stories that talk about the other kids in the city and the parents in the city of Nazareth that, uh, that many a times they would crown Jesus with laurels and they would parade him through the streets. <laughs> really? Nazareth? When he spoke in Nazareth, after he spoke his first message, what did they want to do to Jesus? They wanted to take him out of town and throw him off a cliff. That was his invitation. 
They didn't know who he was. Why is it that those fanciful stories aren't true? Because Jesus was so other-minded that he didn't have to have all the recognition and the applause. It'll come in time. But when he came, he ministered to others. And in order to do his ministry, it meant that he had to recede into the background. That he had to be an individual who wasn't coming with grandiose plans and appearances. He would do his miracles at the leading of the Spirit when it was the appropriate time to fit his message. But overall, the bulk of his life is he was an individual who experienced the negatives of humanity. He experienced hunger like you are right now. He experienced tiredness like some of you are right now. He experienced pains. He experienced pressures. In fact, he experienced such tension and such pressure that when he prayed, he sweated. Have you ever done that? And that was all because, not, be, not because he didn't care, it was because he cared about you and me. And it wasn't about, I'm God, I don't need this pain, I don't need this pressure, I can make my own food, it's all, you know, they're supposed to be worshiping me. No, to meet the needs of others, he gave it up. He gave up the independence use to be an individual that would be focused on other people. Jesus was most of his life was not about being noticed and having the crowds come and make acclaims. He wanted them to hear his message when he did his ministry. But it wasn't about, I want all of you to pay homage, and if you don't, I'm going to zap you. He ministered. He ministered. He ministered. <laughs> True story. Um, but that comes from Jonathan Edwards. Any of you ever hear of him? preacher from the 18, uh, 1700s that led the Great Awakening in America. There's a book that's out about he and his wife. I'm appalled at the title of this book. I can't imagine somebody writing a title of this book called Marriage to a Difficult Man. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Okay. Don't you get this for a birthday or Christmas gift. Okay. <laughs> Saying that, I'm probably going to get five or six copies, but... In this book, there's a story from his own writings that he had an experience in their church that was very divisive to their church. In the church where he was ministering at the time, I don't remember what city it was here in America, but when he's ministering in the church, they had something happen in their church. Their balcony, part of it collapsed. Not when people were in it, but it collapsed on a weekday. That posed a real problem for the church. You see, back in those days, just like in these days, everybody wanted to sit in the front rows. You can tell. You can tell. It happens here too. Okay? The, but in those days, what you would do is the people would, would really want the first few rows. And that was to signify that they were the important people in the church. They were the more wealthier, the more influential. They would get the front row. By the way, in his church, the pews were all the same size, both in the balcony and on the main floor. And in the main floor, if you sat in the first few rows, you would have six people per pew. If you sat in the balcony, the same length would have 11 people per pew. You want to be in the front, okay, to spread out. And so the way the church was designed, and this was very common in colonial America, that the, the more visibly noticed, recognized people would sit to the front, and then it would go from the more important to the least important sat in the back. 
The non-important sat in the balcony. Sorry, folk, that's just the way it was. So the balcony collapses. He said they spent almost a week every night trying to figure out, oh, by the way, the other thing, this is the most amazing thing. The people sat in the same seats week after week. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Now, the reason they did that is they were assigned the seats. Okay? So you couldn't come out of that balcony and say, I feel important today. You'd get kicked out. Okay? So you were assigned what section of the church you had, and you sat there every week. Can't imagine people sitting in the same spot every week. That just amazes me. Yeah, just... So the church, for the building, they, they collapses. They spend a whole week reassigning people so they can get them all in on Sunday, but they have to move people around. The reassignment was so tense because they wanted to offend the least amount of people because that meant now more people would be crowded into the pew and they might have to move some people out of, and everybody was about being noticed at church. And he said it was one of the most difficult times in his ministry. Can you imagine going to church and it's all about being noticed? That it would, it would cause people frustration that they couldn't have their seat. That they wouldn't be recognized by others. Can you imagine a society like that? Amazing. Jesus Christ comes and he says, I don't have to have everybody's accolades and attention. I don't need to be treated by God at this time. In fact, the passage goes on. He says, gave up his right to be. In fact, he says, he, being found in the fashion of man, he humbled himself. You don't, you don't need to you know, see that I'm God with a halo because I'm here to minister to you. You don't need to give me all your accolades right now. You will one day. But I'm here to minister to you. You don't need to see me take charge of everything. In fact, I'm going to become and take upon my life to minister to people. I will come to the point where I will humble myself. I will take the lowliest positions, the duolos, that's the servant here. I will do the lowliest of tasks. I will serve instead of being served. Do you remember the example that threw the disciples for a loop when he knelt down and did what? He washed their feet. He took on the lowliest task and he says at the end of it, what you have seen me do, you do likewise. You do the lowly tasks. You do stuff for others that is uncomfortable and it means you give up. And then, he, then, then in the text, he's, he comes to a point where he says he's willing to give up his life for others. He's so other-centered. He would willingly die for them. And not just any death, the most horrible death, the criminal's death, of that age and that period. That's how he was so others focused. That's where you look at and say, this is amazing. This is, ama- this is what he's asking me to do. This is what he's asking you to do. That when it comes to interaction with one another, that it's not about us being noticed. It's not about us having our rights. It's not about us having our comfort. It's about us saying, hey, listen, instead of judging somebody, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Instead of, instead of you know, parking the closest to the building, and I know some of you need to. But for the rest of us, as we've been talking about for weeks and months in the bulletin, let's park to the outside. It's an other-mindedness. It's this idea that, that I'm, I'm watching my game. 
You know, this is an important thing that I'm doing, but my child needs to be corrected. Whose needs are more important? And training a child takes time, does it not? It's an imposition at times, but their needs are more important. What about letting others go first, the proverbial kindergarten thing? What about something like, for the sake of family, turning off the TV in your special program, your favorite program, turning it off and having a time of prayer together? For the benefit of them and others. What about something so simple as going and visiting a widow? I've been harping on this for the last six, eight weeks. And very little has changed. Is it that our time is that precious that we don't have time to minister, to do the simplicity? This is pure and undefiled religion, James says. Visiting the widows. It's where it starts. Taking a meal to a grieving family. You guys said that when you showed up last week, there was a meal on your back porch that somebody dropped off and how encouraging that was. Ministering in simple ways. Doing something for your parents without being asked. Doing something that's simple like saying thank you and please and respecting other people. Doing something like putting down the phone and read to your kid. Something so simple as, you know, you, somebody inconvenienced you, they didn't show up on time, instead of getting upset, give them the benefit. You don't know what happened. Meeting the needs of others, giving out a gospel track. Well, what will they think? Well, Jesus said, have my mind. Think the way I think, other-minded. How about contacting your grandparents without them having to make the first step to contact you or an elderly family member? You calling them. You going out of your way to visit. What about writing one of our missionaries? You said you would do the adopted. Some of you said you wouldn't do it. What is so wrong with having an other-mindedness of going out of our way to help other people? We say amen to it, but what about doing it? What about taking the practical time to go to your neighbor, establishing a bridge, help rake the leaves? They're just simple things. Instead of rushing out, taking time to encourage and to visit, to fellowship. And I'm not trying to demean those who have, they have to leave, they have obligations. I, I understand that. But week after week, what about being more other-minded? There's a man who wrote to his son. I must read this. I can't, I can't do it by heart. A letter from a man to his son. In it, he describes his appreciation for his wife, the son's mother. The man is paralyzed. Totally. He writes, Son, few men know what it's like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out for dinner when it entails what it does for us. For your mother and I, it means that if we're going out to supper, she has to dress me. She has to shave me. She has to brush my teeth. She has to comb my hair. She has to wheel me out of the house and into the garage. She has to take the pedals off of my chair, stand me up, then turn me and sit me down in the seat. The twist me around can be really uncomfortable, but she does it until I'm comfortable. 
She folds the wheelchair. She puts it in the back of the car. She goes around to the other side of the car, starts it up, backs it out, then gets out of the car, closes the garage door, gets back in the car and drives us to the restaurant. Then she gets out of the car, unfolds the wheelchair after she gets it out of the trunk, opens my door, spins me up, stands me there, seats me in the wheelchair, puts the pedals back on, closes the locks of the car, wheels me into the restaurant, then takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable during the meal. We sit there, we have dinner, which means she has to feed me one bite at a time throughout the entire meal while she's trying to eat her meal. When it's all over, she has to pay the bill. She pushes me out to the car again. She reverses everything about getting the chair and me taken care of, the tedious routine. She gets to the house. She has to get the chair back out. She has to get me into it. And when all it's done and it's over, we're back inside the house. This happens every time. She looks at me and she says, Honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner. He says, Son, I never quite know what to say. That's a servant's heart. That's a mind like Christ. That's what he calls us to. And then what he ends up the chapter, the passage like this. The passage is implications. After he gives all the challenge, he does this. He says, wherefore? Verse 9. And he does it again in verse 12. Verse 9, Wherefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The implication of adopting a mind of Christ, a lifestyle of Christ, is this. The implication is God rewards those who have this spirit of servant. God rewards those individuals. Now, I know we're not going to be rewarded the same way Christ was, and I'm not implying that in any way, shape, or form. But the example of Christ is what's going on in this text. And then he says, wherefore? And with that, he's talking about how Jesus Christ, because of his humility, he's exalted. He's rewarded. We know that that's true. We know that Jesus Christ and what he's telling about the future talks about even at the sheep goat judgment that there's going to be rewards enter into his joy if you saw those who were hungry you fed them. You closed those who were naked. For other mindedness there is rewards. Then he goes on and says what the other implication in the passage is. He tells us that not only is it a reward but God uses you like he did Christ. Look what he says the second wherefore. Verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, it is in my presence only, but now, when I'm gone, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's not make yourself saved. It's the idea is let your salvation show. How? Other-mindedness is the context. For it is God which works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So do this other-mindedness without murmurings and disputings that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Is it not true that our, our society is self-centered? Yes or no? Tendencies that way. Everything I've said so far today, is it natural for us to be focusing on other people? No. It's part of our sin nature. And he says, what I'm calling you to do is go contrary to your nature. Contrary to your culture and you become look what he says here's what you become he says doing that you in the midst of this nation among whom you shine as what as lights in this world holding forth the what the word of life that I may rejoice what's he saying God will use your other centeredness 
to reach other individuals with the gospel. It will make an impact. You will be acting like the Son of God. You will all of a sudden improve your witness to a magnificent degree. And God will make a, make a big, big impact in other people's lives because you've become more other-centered. There's a story written by a preacher. And the story was given in Christianity Today. You probably read it. And bear with me. His name is Dr. Robert Smith. His 34-year-old son, Antonio, was killed in a restaurant robbery. During the trial, I saw the back of Tony's murderer, then just an 18-year-old kid. I saw his mother and some family members weeping as the judge sentenced him to many years in prison. Following our own son's murder, which did not seem to have any redemptive value, the question God's Spirit asked my heart was, do you really believe the gospel that you preach? I knew how to explain it, illustrate, apply forgiveness from a biblical perspective. Now God was challenging me that I must, by his grace, live that forgiveness now. Thirty years prior to my son's murder, I also had been working at a store on a Saturday night around 11 p.m. and was robbed at gunpoint. God spared my life. I struggled with how God could spare my life but not spare the life of my son. God had been preparing me to mirror forgiveness modeled by Jesus who died for the ungodly. I have forgiven Tony's murderer. I confess that the ache of the memory is still there, but the paralyzing sting that has been swallowed up has done, been done so by God's agape love. So in September 2012, I finally mailed a letter to this young man asking that he would add my name to his visitors list so I could visit him and deliver him the gospel of Christ. Just a few weeks ago, he added my name to the list. This is written a couple years back. Soon by God's grace... I will see the young man whose face was the last face our son saw before he was standing in the presence of Christ. I pray that that man gets saved. I don't know what happened since then. But I know that this is the mind of Christ. This is the mind that says others-centered, not self-centered. This is the mind that Christ has called us to have. Read with me. The text again, out loud. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also that's his command. That's what he wants us to do. To have the mind of Christ.